All right. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm filling in for Pastor Matt this morning. And um, today we're going to discuss the kingdom of God. So before we do that, we better pray about it. Okay. So Lord God, um, you are so good to us. You are full of mercy and grace, patient and long suffering. We pray for your spirit to encourage, educate and empower us regarding your will and your way. We want to love and obey. Help us to have a clear understanding of your gospel, the good news that offers eternal peace for those that repent and believe. Give us clarity and confidence regarding your truth. Give us courage and commitment to share the gospel with those that don't yet know you. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. All right. Well, I timed to myself this morning, I think 35 minutes. I owe you about 10 from my last sermon, so we'll call it even at the end. Um, so today we're going to go look at God's word regarding the gospel of the kingdom. Well, what is the gospel? And what is the kingdom? And what does all this mean to you and me? So in the past, Matt has used an analogy that I'm going to recycle and that is, I can put on a Seattle Seahawk jersey. I can talk like a Seahawk. I can act like a Seahawk. I can seek privilege and prestige like a Seahawk. Unfortunately, there's a problem. I'm not a Seahawk. Now, I don't want to offend you fans out there, but it's one thing to be a fan of the Seahawks, and it's another to be a member of the team. You see, the kingdom of Seahawks has a coach, they have staff, they have a stadium, roster, payroll, playbook, practice, and games. The only way I'm truly a Seahawk is if I'm truly a member or a citizen of this kingdom. My jersey doesn't make me a citizen. Rather, it's my citizenship, commitment, and integration into the team and organization makes me a Seahawk. Wishful thinking doesn't make me a Seahawk. Reality does. Likewise, consider the United States. The U.S. is a kingdom in every sense of the word. We have a government, we've got borders, we've got laws, standards, treasury, values, and culture. To be a citizen of the kingdom of the United States means that I'm involved with or impacted everything that I just listed. As a citizen, I subscribe to the vision of the Declaration of Independence, the framework of the Constitution, and the values embodied in the Bill of Rights. I have a Social Security number. I pay taxes. I'm on the roster of citizens. My all-in commitment and adherence to these principles, along with the formal and legal status, is what makes me a citizen of the United States. So in both these examples, reality and formality is what actually defines my citizenship. My desires do not make me a citizen, nor do any false claims make me a citizen. My citizenship is defined, determined, and demanded by the king. So our question and topic today is, what is God's kingdom? How do I enter? And what does citizenship look like? As we will see, this is not a question, but it actually is the question. Jesus couldn't talk enough about his kingdom. 
The kingdom permeated everything from John the Baptist announcing Jesus as Messiah all the way through his teaching and his parables. The kingdom is emphasized. I like how uh, Jeremy Treat is a pastor of a church down in the LA area. Jeremy said this, he said, Jesus spent so much time talking about the kingdom of God because it's not just another thing his disciples need to learn. The kingdom of God was the framework for everything that they needed to learn. However, however, for those of us not part of the Jewish culture of Jesus's day, this understanding does not come easy. As Philip Morrow, he wrote a book called The Gospel of the Kingdom, puts it, but for all his repeated mentions of the kingdom of God, Jesus never once paused to define it. Nor did any hearer ever interrupt him and ask, Master, what are these words, the kingdom of God, which you so often mean? On the contrary, Jesus used the term as if assured it would be understood, and indeed it was. The kingdom of God lay within the vocabulary of every Jew. It was something they understood and longed for desperately. To us, on the contrary, it's a strange term, and it is necessary that we give it content if we are to comprehend it. We must ask where that notion came from and what it meant to Jesus and those whom he spoke. So that was how Philip Morrow characterized the situation in our understanding of the kingdom of God. So those are tall marching orders for this morning, but we're going we're gonna to go for it. And so today we're going to review the gospel of Matthew. We've been in Matthew for a while now with a little support from Mark and a little support from Luke, but we're going to do that towards a shared understanding of the kingdom. So let's get started. So please turn to Matthew chapter three. And you know, you know Matt's passionate about this. I'm going to put some verses up, but I think it's really important that we journey through uh, the Bible together. And so let's go back to Matthew chapter three. So back in May of 2022, <laughs> sorry, Matt, we studied Matthew chapter three regarding John the Baptist and his preaching in the desert of Judea. That's the geographic area between Jerusalem and the Jordan River and the Dead Sea to the east. So let's start in verse one and two. And thanks, Alex, by doing the video for me today. So in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or the way, and you don't have to turn to Mark to stay there in Matthew, but the way Mark puts it in Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And then Mark continues in verse four, John appeared baptizing him in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So what does John the Baptist say to do? Well, he says, repent. Well, why? Well, because the kingdom's at hand. Well, to what end? Forgiveness of sins. This is John the Baptist's proclaiming of the gospel of the kingdom. So let's move on in our survey here. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. 
So after John baptizes Jesus, Jesus spends 40 days fasting in the desert. And as we studied, Satan attempted to tempt Jesus with misuse and misrepresentation of scripture against him. This attempt fails and Jesus is attended to by angels before announcing his purpose for coming. So if we look at Matthew 4.17, this is where Jesus clearly and definitively introduces his ministry. He says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And again, you don't have to turn to Mark, but in the gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, the way Mark puts it is, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So this is so important. This is how Jesus chooses to announce his ministry to the world. What does Jesus tell us to do? He said, repent and believe. We'll believe in what? The gospel. Well, what gospel? What good news? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So again, we're seeing these patterns of repentance, belief, proclaiming the kingdom. So given the seminal nature of these introductory comments, it would seem critically important to those of us that claim to follow Christ that we understand, embrace, and live as citizens of Jesus' kingdom. So it turns out that the concept and the word kingdom is central to Jesus' teaching in the gospel itself. According to the Blue Line Bible, the word kingdom appears 157 times in the ESV version of the New Testament. Although a few of these uses address an earthly king or a kingdom, the overwhelming majority refer to God's kingdom. And these references take at least seven, seven different forms, including the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of the father, kingdom of our father, David, kingdom of Christ and God and kingdom of his beloved son. In fact, the word kingdom appears 50 times in the book of Matthew alone. All of these variations point to the same kingdom. So from this point forward, I'm simply going to refer to the kingdom. So let's follow the use and development and refinement of the kingdom throughout the balance of Matthew. So let's turn to Matthew uh, chapter 5. If you recall, we, again, we studied this about a year ago. The Matthew chapters 5 through 7 are known as the Sermon on the Mount. How is the kingdom used in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5 are known as the Beatitudes. And in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 5, it said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The pattern continues. The word blessed means more than happy. 
because happiness is an emotion and it's often dependent upon outward circumstances. Blessed here refers to the ultimate well-being and distinctive spiritual joy of those who share in the salvation of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is linking humility and righteousness to the gift and blessing of the citizenship in his kingdom in these Beatitudes. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 6, moving right along. This is more of the Sermon on the Mount, but this is about the Lord's Prayer. So in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus instructs his disciples to pray what is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. And this is, so let's read Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. So Jesus is telling us to pray for God's kingdom to come according to his will everywhere. But wait a second. John the Baptist and Jesus both said the kingdom is at hand. And now Jesus is telling us to pray your kingdom come. Well, which is it? Well, here we begin to see that the kingdom of God is not a moment in time. The kingdom sweeps through time, having past, present, and future components. So let's continue with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. So in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, Matthew 6, 25 through 34, Jesus tells us not to worry about what we will eat, drink, or wear. To this end, in verse 33 of Matthew 6, he tells us, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Well, unless I miss something, there is only one first. Jesus makes it clear what our first should be. Our first should be seeking the kingdom of God. This is another seminal statement by Jesus. Our first priority above all else is seeking the kingdom. He tells us to prioritize and focus on the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he will faithfully take care of our needs. Let's jump to Matthew chapter 11. This is about John the Baptist in prison. In Matthew chapter 11, we find out that John the Baptist has been jailed for publicly confronting Herod's sin. John sends his disciples to Jesus with a simple yet critical question. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus answers John's question with a summary of his Messiahship, the blind receiving sight, the lame walking, leprosy cured, the deaf hearing, the dead raised. And he said, and the good news is preached to the poor. Here, Jesus refers to his teaching as good news. After this, Jesus begins to speak to the crowd about John the Baptist. 
and he does so with allusions to the kingdom. So in chapter 11, verses 11 through 12, so Matthew 11, 11 through 12, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. So here we see Jesus referring to the kingdom of heaven, both regarding the greatness of being a citizen of that kingdom and highlighting the fact that when they enter the kingdom and become Christ's disciples with spiritual courage, vigor, power, and determination due to their persecution. So let's go to chapter 13. So in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus begins a string of parables that explain what the kingdom is like. So he starts in verses 1 through 9 with the parable of the sower. At the end of this parable in verse 10, the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, Why do you speak to the people in parables? Well, Jesus answers in verses 11 through 13, and we've studied this. He said, and he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it's not been given, for to the one who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus is clearly and directly linking knowledge of the kingdom to an openness and a willingness to hear truth. He, he quotes Deuteronomy 29.4, and he quotes Isaiah 6.9 to show that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. And in verse 16, Jesus tells his faithful disciples, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Jesus is linking knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom to a willingness and ability to hear the gospel. After the parable of the sower, Jesus continues with the parable of the weeds, parable of the mustard seed, parable of the yeast, parable of the pearl, and parable of the net. And he begins all of these parables with the phrase, you can guess it, the kingdom of heaven is like. And to really drive the point home, Jesus goes into incredible detail explaining the parable of the weeds. In Matthew 13, verse 38, he says the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. And in verse 41, he says his angels will weed out all sin and evil from his kingdom. These parables all intend are all intended to do one thing, describe the kingdom to those who can hear. Let's go to Matthew chapter 17. It's about Jesus's transfiguration. So in Matthew chapter 17, we hear of Jesus taking Peter, James, and John with him to the top of a mountain where Jesus's face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light. He spoke with Moses and Elijah, 
And God spoke saying, this is my son who I love and with him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is known as the transfiguration of Jesus. But if we step back, so right at the end of chapter 16, verses 27 and 28. So Matthew 16, 27 and 28, Jesus foreshadowed his transfiguration to the apostles. And what did he say? For the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in what? His kingdom. So here we see Jesus equating his transfiguration with coming in his kingdom. This was prophecy, which was fulfilled six days later in the eyes of Jesus's lead apostles during the transfiguration. So as we have seen in our study of Matthew, the apostles had a hard time not comparing and competing with each other. In Matthew 18, so Matthew 18, Jesus corrects and redirects the disciples who were worried about who would be the greatest in heaven, in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 18, verse 1, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus answers and instructs them with a show and tell. In chapter 18, verses 2 through 4, this is what the show and tell was. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. More and more and more about the kingdom. Jesus points to the trusting and unpretentious nature of childlike innocence for entry into the kingdom and humility as a measure of greatness in, in the kingdom. These are yet more examples of the upside down nature of God's kingdom relative to the world that we live in. It's also instructive to look at how and why Jesus sent out his apostles and disciples to spread the gospel. So keep one finger in Matthew Let's switch over to Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke, the physician who interviewed and documented all this for our benefit. So Luke chapter nine. So in Luke nine verses one and two, we hear about Jesus sending out his 12 apostles for the first time. And what does it say in verse nine? It says he called the 12 together gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And then if you flip over to Luke 10, we're going to do Luke 10 verses eight through 12. Jesus sends out 72 disciples to spread the gospel again. So in Luke 10, 8 through 12, we hear similar marching orders and purpose. And here's what it says. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, 
the kingdom of God has come to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know that the kingdom of our God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So in both these instances of sending the disciples to share the gospel, the purpose is twofold. Proclaim the kingdom and heal. Proclaiming the gospel was the message and healing was literal and figurative proof of God's love and the healing power of the gospel. So we just finished studying Matthew 24 done in Luke. We just finished studying Matthew 24 and 25 known collectively as the Olivet Discourse. In this discourse, Jesus told his disciples about the end of the age and the unprecedented birth pains associated with his return. So let's turn to Matthew 24, please. So in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 8, Jesus warns his disciples about what will happen in the world. We've studied this. And in verses 9 through 13, he warns his disciples about the difficulties that will be faced by believers and how they will be treated by the unbelieving world. And in verse 14, Jesus brings us all under the big picture of his gospel kingdom plan by saying, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So we see that proclaiming the gospel will be a form of testimony to all men as the end plays out. So although we've not covered the balance of Matthew yet, we will hear Jesus speak during the Last Supper of drinking wine with his apostles again in his Father's kingdom. We will hear Jesus tell Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world and that he is a king who came to testify to the truth. We will hear Joseph of Arimathea, who was waiting for the kingdom of God, lovingly place Jesus's body in a tomb. And finally, Jesus will instruct the remaining 11 disciples with what is known as the Great Commission in Matthew 28. So let's turn to Matthew 28, please. We're going to read Matthew 28 verses, verse 16 through 20. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told him to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always till the very end of the age. The Great Commission is sharing the gospel of the kingdom, making disciples and teaching them to obey Jesus. Jesus's command is just that. 
And you don't have to turn there, but as Luke puts it in Luke 24, 45 through 47, before Jesus's ascension, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So we are to proclaim Jesus's crucifixion, resurrection, repentance, and forgiveness of sins to everyone, everywhere. This is the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. So through and to the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus constantly spoke of his kingdom. He announced the kingdom. He spoke of blessings, prayer, and parables in relation to the kingdom. He spoke of entry into the kingdom, and he instructed his followers to spread the gospel of the kingdom to the rest of the world. So our understanding and identity as Christians are intimately and necessarily tied to our understanding acceptance, and membership in the kingdom, his kingdom. Remember that we said that the word kingdom occurs 157 times in the New Testament. Well, 124 of those occur in the uh, four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy, Hebrew, James, Second Peter and Revelation all address the kingdom. I anticipate a follow-up message that journeys through these books regarding the kingdom. That's for another day. So now you might be saying, well, yes, I understand the concept of God's kingdom is important. I understand the kingdom to this, of the Seahawks, and I understand the kingdom of the United States. But what exactly is the kingdom of God? And what exactly is the relationship of the, to, of the gospel to the kingdom? So I agree. This is the question. What is the kingdom and what is the gospel of the kingdom? Well, great minds have asked these questions and crafted great answers. So let's look at a few. So Philip Morrow wrote a book called The Gospel of the Kingdom. And this says, Alex, is there? There, thank you, bud. Says this of the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is and was then and ever will be that spiritual realm in which the authority of God's King Eternal, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, is acknowledged and his law is obeyed from the heart by a people who have believed on his name, have been washed in his kingdom and have been, excuse me, have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Pretty good. Gospel, the kingdom. And as John Bright, John Bright puts it this way. He said, this then is the good news, which the New Testament with unanimous voice proclaims that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah Fulfillment of all the hope of Israel, who has come to set up the kingdom of God among men. And I like how Steve Gregg, author of the book Kingdom of the Sun, Risen Sun, excuse me, summarizes the gospel of the kingdom. 
Steve put it this way, the good news of the kingdom of God is simply that God, through Jesus's mediation, is reigning and that he has acquired a specific community of people who acknowledge him as their monarch in their loyalty, words, and deeds. Or even better, Steve puts it this way, the kingdom is an alternative society. Uh, on the earth, a global colony of Jesus, King Jesus, who reigns over the personal and corporate lives of his citizens or disciples, having designs on the conquest of every soul until every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Man, those are all good. And I love the simplicity and the focus of Jeremy Treat, who I quoted earlier, and Jeremy puts it this way. The kingdom of, is God's reign through God's people over God's place. Simple. These are all great examples. So if pressed, I'd put it this way, and this has evolved about a hundred times. I put it that we are members indeed of an alternative society, the kingdom of God. We have allegiance to a king that we serve and worship in love and obedience our identity has been transformed from a citizen of the world to a citizen of God's kingdom. Our king reigns in all things and in all places and in all time. We believe that this is true and we live as such. I'm sure you'd agree this is definitely good news and way better than a Seahawk jersey. All right, let's pray. Lord God, just uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for your message. Thank you for um, opening our minds so that we can hear, we can see, we can understand. And Lord, give us um, a desire to uh, dive deeply into your word and understand exactly what the kingdom is and what our role is in your kingdom and what you would have us do regarding the gospel of your kingdom. Lord, just... Uh, Thank you for Pastor Matt, and we look forward to him coming back up here again. And in the meantime, Lord, just bless us with a, a day of uh, reverent worship of you, our King. In your name, amen. Thank you, everybody. You're dismissed.